If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity, because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. Really what Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for in her career is something that I saw play out in my family, which is that the lack of equity of economic opportunity for my sisters not only impacted them, but it impacted their families. So things like you could be fired for being pregnant, you couldn't get a business loan as a woman without a male cosigner, you couldn't get an apartment, you couldn't get a credit card. All these things I actually saw play out. We're almost to 2023, and we're still having conversations about how to make gender equity happen. In the U.S., women represent 48% of the entry-level workforce, but only 24% of C-suite execs. Men are promoted at a rate of 21% more than women. We still have a gender and racial pay gap and a motherhood penalty. Yet closing the gender gap is not only the right thing to do, it's good for the economy and would increase the U.S. GDP by $3.1 trillion. In today's conversation, Consciously Unbiased founder Ashish Kaushal sits down with Katika Roy, a gender economist and founder of Pipeline, a company that uses analytics to quantify unconscious bias within an organization. Katika also has an extraordinary story as the daughter of a refugee and an immigrant on why she is so passionate about advancing equity. They cover everything from the difference between equality and equity, how gender equity helps men too, and whether salary transparency policies are truly effective. Now, on to their conversation. Very nice to meet you. So why are you personally so passionate about advocating for gender equality? Yeah, so we actually talk about gender equity, and there's a couple. There's actually three different reasons. The first is uh, that I am the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. So my mom was actually born in on Guernsey uh, in 1939, the year that World War II began, and in 1940, when France fell to the German army. She was one of the 5,000 children that was evacuated to mainland England. She was 18 months old, separated from her mom and four older siblings, and placed into an orphanage. And um, a year later, she was adopted, and she would actually never see her own mother again. And at the age of 21, she emigrated to the United States for equality and opportunity. I'm also the daughter of a refugee, My father escaped from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. And his decision to escape was difficult, not only because he'd be risking his life, but also the lives of his three daughters, who were aged three, seven, and eight at the time. And with the help of Hungarian freedom fighters, they actually walked across a minefield, crossed the border into Austria, and arrived to a refugee camp. And less than two months into their stay in the refugee camp, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the United States on Christmas Day, 1956, and they were on that plane. So a core part of why I started Pipeline is because I am here with you today because one person in a position of power 
stood up and said, not on my watch, these people matter, this will not happen. So that's really the first part, the family history. The second, which won't take quite as long, is the second and third uh, is that I am, uh, the second is my place in my family. So I'm the youngest of six children, five girls, one boy. And I really what Ruth, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for in her career is something that I, I saw play out in my family, which is that the lack of equity of economic opportunity for my sisters not only impacted them, but it impacted their families. So things like you could be fired for being pregnant, you couldn't get a business loan as a woman without a male cosigner, you couldn't get an apartment, you couldn't get a credit card, all these things I actually saw play out. And then the last is that I am a breadwinner mom who fought to be paid equitably twice and won. And so I understood firsthand the inequities that uh, women, particularly moms, faced in the workplace. And given my background, uh, both in business with an MBA, as well as a software engineer, felt that I could create a system that would actually marry economic opportunity with greater equity. Wow. <laughs> There's so much to <laughs> I mean, first I was thinking your mom is such a strong, powerful woman who's really sort of put fighting in, in the DNA of your of your whole family, but then your dad also has a similar story. And so I'm just I'm just like, wow, <laughs> that's all I can say. It's such an amazing background and journey that your your family's gone through. You said you fought for equitable pay twice in one. Was that like sort of standing up for yourself within a company or did you have to go through like a legal route to get that done? Yeah, I didn't go through a legal route. I mean, I, I was a litigation paralegal. That was my first job out of college. Um, that's not where I fought to be paid equitably. So I understood how to do legal research. And essentially, the first time I fought to be paid equitably uh, was when I was I returned from maternity leave with my daughter. And when I'd been on maternity leave, my boss was optimized, which is basically a fancy word for fired. And there had been six of us on the leadership team, and now there were two. So a day after I returned from maternity leave, I was asked to take on a new team. And then two weeks later, I was asked to take on a third team, which meant I had three teams that I was managing, which was great. It was a great opportunity for a breadwinner mom of four, but my male colleague took on one additional team. He was also one pay grade higher than I was and received additional compensation for that new team. And I received nothing. And so when I went to HR and asked them how they wanted to make me whole on my, on my pay, you know, they didn't really say anything. And so I thought, well, there's got to be something that makes this illegal. I did my research and found the Lilly Better Fair Pay Act. And that actually changed the statute of limitations for equal pay from when the pay decision was made to every time you pay someone inequitably. And so I called HR and said, this is a Lily Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? And to their credit, they increased my pay, gave me back pay, and increased my level. But it really left me thinking, why did I have to research my rights in order to be treated uh, or really paid equitably? And that was a key part of where my journey to pipeline began. Interesting. I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying in terms of like, why did you have to fight for it? But I also kind of think that a lot of companies probably don't know about this law right? from an HR perspective. And that they're like HR basically, they're there to sort of 
manage risk and also manage expenses. And so they're going to be, even if your manager wants to increase you, a lot of times you get pushed back from different people within the organization. But if they all were aware of this law, I think that would make things a lot easier. Yeah, well, and they should be because it's an employment law, but yes, <laughs> you know what I mean? That they have to comply with, but yeah, it makes it harder if you don't know what your pay is, right? And you don't know that, you know, it's interesting that you say that the other pieces, it, it makes it harder on two pieces. One is if you don't know what your pay is, and I think there's been positive advances in terms of steps, I wouldn't say they're true pay transparency, but steps toward pay transparency, you know, but we've seen that in New York, we saw it in Colorado, it'll be coming to California on January 1st. But the other piece about that, that we've actually found at Pipeline, is that you can't close the gender pay gap by starting with pay. And what I, I mean by that is that pay is the quantitative value that companies place on their talent. But the actual value happens before that in, in performance and potential. So one of the things that Pipeline does is to ensure that performance reviews and potential ratings are actually equitable so that when you are uh, calculating pay, you're ensuring equitable inputs. Oh, interesting. And I think you bring up a good topic on that, too, because a lot of times organizations ask you to write your own <laughs> evaluation and men are generally easier on themselves when they write that evaluation. If that plugs into a formula to, to get a raise, you're, you're going to make, you're going to make it sway a certain way because of that, you know? Well, for sure. And, and <laughs> yeah, and yeah, well, that's true. And what we found, because in the pipeline platform, in the performance recommendations, there's two types of recommendations we provide. One are we use natural language processing to read through the performance reviews and call it any bias phrases. Mm -hmm. And then the second is we calibrate the ratings themselves. And in the natural language processing piece, what we've actually found is there's, I mean, there's lots of different types of bias, but there's sort of like three key uh, trends that we found. One is that uh, women's emotional state is commented on more than men's. Um, so men's performance reviews tend to be far more uh, direct and to the point and task uh, oriented. Uh, women's tend to include a lot more around communication, et cetera. That's mm -hmm. one. The second is that women are uh, often rewarded for doing unpaid work at work. So there's a lot of talk about unpaid work at home, but in actual fact, it also happens at work. So that is everything from ERGs to planning parties and, you know, those kinds of things. We actually had a, a customer who one of their core values was celebration and fun. And we found that that, you know, that was actually leading to gender bias <laughs> against women. And then the last piece is if a company has a name like a moniker that exemplifies their culture. So for instance, like a Google, it'd be a Googler or a Charles Schwab, it's a Schwabie, that mm -hmm. women are held to account to demonstrate those values to get ahead. Men are not. It's great if they do, but not such a big deal if they don't. Oh, wow. Interesting. So it's almost like they're the culture attache of the organization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that you kind of remind me of is coming back to work is, I actually, for my organization, one of the people I hired, she used to be a bartender across the street from our office and she was eight months pregnant and she was still working behind the bar. And I was like, why are you still working behind the bar? And she's like, 
because I like to work. And I was like, oh, interesting. What did you do before this? And she said, I used to sell water door to door. I'm like, okay, why'd you stop? She goes, well, my husband didn't want me to do that anymore because he didn't feel like it was safe to go into people's houses to sell them water. And I'm like, how'd you do selling water? And she goes, I did pretty well. I'm like, wow, you competed against the tap and you were able to sell very well. And she goes, yeah. I'm like, all right, well, I need somebody who can help me with Salesforce because um, my salespeople don't enter the data correctly or consistently. So if you're open to it and you know how to do Salesforce, then I'd be happy to have you work from home from day one. And she's like, I don't know what my husband does. So she's like, I'll give you a call on Monday if I can learn it. And, and then I said, all right, great. And so then she called me on Monday and said, I got it done. I was like, awesome interview with my salespeople. And if they like you, then we'll hire you. And we hired her. And I could tell you in the, like, she worked for two weeks and went on maternity leave. And then she came back and worked from home. And in four hours a day that she was working, she did way more than most people did in eight hours. And so I think one of the shifts we have to make to get equality done is to manage by objectives rather than time. Yes. Well, yes. And that's, it's still subjective. (laughs) That's the, that's the, you know, it's um, the only reason why I mentioned that is because it, 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 I know you're not saying this, but one of the things that we, or that has been a, something that is responded to in terms of gender equity is like, oh, well, it's a mer- we're a meritocracy, right? Like we, we, we're a meritocracy. And the, the thing about that is, is that meritocracies fail women. They're not made because a meritocracy is based on typically uh, what uh, success looks like for a white man. It doesn't, it's not what it looks like for women. So it, they're inherently built to undervalue women. And so we just have to be careful that when we build systems, we, we are really checking ourselves to ensure that there's not an assumption that they're gender neutral when in fact they're gender ignorant. And, I'll, you know, our public policy, I know we're talking about technology today. However, our public policy systems have that, unfortunately, which is that they is that we have an assumption that our public policy is gender neutral and it's not, it's gender biased. And I'll give you just one example. During the pandemic in the United States, there was a lot of stimulus. Some could argue there needed to be more, but there was a lot of stimulus that was pumped into the economy. And one of that, one piece of that were payments that were made, excuse me, to families. And so if you basically got a certain amount of money per adult and a certain amount of money per child. Mm -hmm. And it was the same all across the board. The issue is that if you're a family of four, so let's say a husband and wife and two children versus a single mom with two children, your expenses are not that much different. And yet if you're a married couple, you typically would have more money coming in and more in savings than a single mom. So we didn't actually gender lens any of that stimulus uh, going out. And therefore, we biased against women and their families. Yeah, those are things we don't really think about. That's super interesting. And the other thing you said, you said there's three parts to your, to your software. So the first is NLP. What, are, what were the other two things, other two components? Oh, well, that would, I, I actually, so I was saying in performance, I said there's two types of recommendations we give. One is natural language processing in the performance mod. So there's five modules in, mm-hmm. in the pipeline platform, internal hiring, pay, performance, potential, and promotion. 
within the performance, and they're all recommendations engines. So essentially, they're augmented decision making, so much like you would use Google Maps or Waze to get from point A to point B. We do the very same thing, but for companies, people decisions. And what we're doing is running all those decisions through our algorithms to ensure that they're equitable. And if they're not, then we make recommendations. It's really about shifting the system from inequitable by default to equitable by design. And in the performance module, there's two types of recommendations that we give. One is the natural language processing, which calls out bias phrases. Um, The second is actually calibrating the ratings themselves to ensure equitable, uh, similar performance receives similar ratings. So, for instance, we've actually found that about a third of all performance reviews contain bias, Mm -hmm. and 4% of the time that leads to women receiving lower performance ratings. And why do you think in 2022 we're still having a conversation about how to make gender equality happen? So, so Pipeline started with a couple of things. We started with research and we looked at the market. So from a research perspective, we did a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race and ethnicity and age, there's a 1% to 2% increase in revenue. So mm-hmm. equity is not only a social issue or the right thing to do. It's actually a massive economic opportunity. So mm-hmm. that's one. And then in the marketplace, what we found is that 96% of CEOs are committed to equity. Unfortunately, only 22% of employees regularly see it shared and measured. So Mm -hmm. there's a um, 74-point gap between what companies say is important and the actual, like their employer branding and the actual employee experience. And so that's what Pipeline aims to close. There have been an increasing number of companies that have been committed to equity, the the issue really is not awareness, it's execution. That is, a lot of the solutions that we have put forward in terms of uh, equity are not, they're like checkbox diversity. They're not actually ensuring that we move toward equity. I'll give you one example, implicit bias training. So implicit bias training Uh, Companies spend $8 billion each and every year on implicit bias training, and uh, it's well-intended. And what the data shows is that not only does it not work, it can actually make inclusion worse because it reinforces stereotypes. And so what we need to think about, and we're, you know, in the United States, we're a capitalistic society. How do we redeploy that capital for a better return? And technology such as pipeline is a much better return. Mm. I should also mention for any folks that are listening, pipeline actually, this is the first time we've ever done this, but pipeline actually launched a new offering called a, an equity baseline. And any company that has 200 or more employees can actually get a complimentary, that is free, equity baseline um, to actually see where they are in their journey toward equity. So that's something that we offer because we believe in equity for all. Oh, that is awesome. And so that's sort of done through like surveys and things like that? No, it's actually done through their data. So if they go to pipeline equity, uh, so two E's, pipelineequity.com, Uh, and uh, they'll see that tiered offering. It's the one on the left called the equity baseline. They can sign up, and then we will give them a secure link 
to send us their data and we will provide them a free equity baseline. So it's all their data. Um, we, we believe in really looking at their data, the real numbers versus the perception of the numbers. Uh, and so there's really no way to fudge the pipeline platform. It's, it's purely their data. Okay. And the data is things like their gender and race and things like that. Yeah. There's people data. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then I guess, because we've been talking a lot about equity, what's the difference between equity and equality? So, you know, quality is the goal. Equity is how we, is the path. And what equity does is really uh, take into account that not everyone has the same starting line. So folks may have seen an inclusion walk where basically you have everyone start on the same starting line. And then uh, a facilitator calls out different demographics, if you will. So that could be did you grow up with a single mom? Were your parents college educated, et cetera? And, and uh, depending on those pieces, you either take a step forward or a step backward. So equity is really about meeting people where they are and moving them forward. Another way to explain equity is uh, versus equality. If you and I, uh, assuming we're different uh, heights, we're trying to look over a fence Equality would give us the same height box to stand on. Equity would give us a different height box relative to our height and the height of the fence that we're looking over so that the outcome is the same, that you and I can both look over that fence. Oh, interesting. I like the way that that makes it really simple and easy to understand. How it, so what can men do to push equality in the workplace? Well, I think there's, you know, there's a couple of pieces uh, when we talk about this. One is that we often assume that gender equity is a synonym for women's rights, and it isn't. Women are half the conversation, but men are the other half, not only because they have the majority of leadership positions in companies, but also because gender inequity impacts them too. We just don't talk about it. And I'll give you some examples. So, for instance, 48% of working fathers would like to stay home with their children, but they can't. And the reasons are identity and isolation. Identity of like, who will I be, right? And uh, isolation of who will I connect with? And so we need to ensure that we're not just assuming that it's all okay for men and and it's not okay for women. It's actually... Gender equity is about ensuring equitable outcomes for everyone. It's almost like a social stigma that your men are worried about as well. For sure. And who will they connect with? What will their place be? We, we need to, uh, mental health in particular is a men's issue. It, it does, it's not that it doesn't impact women, it does. But mm-hmm. men are, are far more gravely impacted by mental health than women are. And that's something that we need to be paying attention to. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Probably that's a little bit because we're used to shoving down our, or suppressing our, our thoughts, you know, and our feelings from childhood. One of the things that- And that's actually, I mean, just, it does happen in childhood. I think we often think that, you know, people just magically show up to the workplace and that's where this starts. It doesn't. And particularly for boys, it happens in sports. That's where that idea of being a man mm-hmm. often starts with. And so both professional sports, what they see, but also their experience in team sports. And so if we shift the culture of sports from 
you know, purely about winning and what that looks like to really about development of individuals, because statistically, most of us are never going to be professional athletes, right? Uh, That we can actually then change this definition of what it means to be a man. It's interesting because I think like what sports is supposed to do is teach you how to be a team player and realize that the system's not just about you, but it's a network of network effective. All of us together are more perfect than uh, one person individually to overcome a task, whatever, or to achieve a goal of winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But a lot of what you're taught, when I, at least when I was a kid, is suck it up, be tough. If you get hurt, push through it. Don't or don't feel bad about anything. You know, <laughs> it's desensitizing. Right. Desensitized yourself like you're you're burying yourself basically you're burying all of your vulnerability right any sort of sense of vulnerability and emotions which by the way is also where we develop connection absolutely yeah i I always say the strength and vulnerability for sure being vulnerable is it's tough and it's incredibly strong to be vulnerable especially for men yeah. In a society that tells them that they that vulnerability is weakness and they shouldn't do that, they'll be rejected from their place in society if they do so. Um, and so you're right, you know. And so then, when you struggle, which we all do, that's part of the human condition, men, women, non-binary. Then we've basically made it so that you're completely isolated. Yeah, and that's very dangerous. Hundred percent. Yeah, so we need to break that cycle for sure. So I also run a recruiting firm. And one of the things that we last few years we've noticed is that the New York City started off where you couldn't ask people what their salaries were, right? And and that mm-hmm. hope was the gender or pay pay parity. And I always felt like that was not the right solution because I feel like companies have the list of salaries of everyone who works there and they understand what their job titles are and the roles. And that it doesn't matter if you have 20 years experience or four years experience, if if the job requires four years and that's what you have experience and that's what's relevant for today, then we should easily be able to tell and give, give our workers the equivalent salary based on the, based on what's required of the job. And I felt like that was just pushing it off to the individual to have, make everyone fight for their, what they feel like they're worth. And I felt like that was creating more pay parity because I may be more aggressive as a personality and ask for more. If you can't ask me what my previous salary was, I might ask for 150 when I made 100, and you may ask for 120 when you made 100 your last job. And so that just creates more of a pay parity. So I think the idea is right, but I think what they really should do is hold the accountability on on making companies report and also make have them compare: is everyone getting paid the same amount for the roles that they're doing? You know, regardless of where they started. What are your thoughts on on how these policies sort of playing out in New York, California, and Washington, for example? Well, there's two. There's a couple of things. One, it's a good start, right? <laughs> it is. It's a good start in terms of you know the the first real step in the United States toward the modern step toward pay equity was in Massachusetts, with uh, barring uh, companies from asking about people's previous pay, right? Mm-hmm. So that that was a great first step. The salary transparency uh, or pay ranges, actually, we should say it's not really transparency, is a good second step. Mm. And they still won't solve the issue. And that is, I mean, we've even seen that, right, both in Colorado and in New York, where the ranges are so wide often, you know, that 
I'm not sure how incredibly helpful it is. I mean, it's better than not having it. But I've often, what I have advocated for is actually that, that we should have in the United States where companies have to prove that they're paying equitably, uh, that, 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 that the burden should be shifted from the employee uh, to the employer. Uh, because by definition, if you are experiencing inequity, you don't have power because why would you do that to yourself? And still our systems are really based on employees having to speak up in the face of inequity, much like I had to. And what we should be doing is shifting this to companies proving that they're paying equitably. And we actually have a mechanism for doing that in the United States. So it would be a modernization of both the 1963 Equal Pay Act, as well as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, Section 7 created um, the EEOC. So every year, companies have to report on demographics, so gender and race and ethnicity, uh, by level. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, for the first time in United States history, companies actually um, had to report on compensation by those levels. That was that then that you know got into the courts, so now it's currently not happening. But it, it is a, if we modernize that mechanism, the EEO1 reporting, for companies to actually prove that they're paying equitably, um, and then face some sort of consequence if they aren't, that would actually go a long way towards e- equitable pay. The other piece of that is that folks should understand is that if you pay taxes, you are subsidizing um, the gender pay gap. And what I mean by that is that where the gender gap is most pronounced in uh, both sectors as well as occupations, those folks are more likely to be reliant, and most of them are women, majority are women, uh, on social services, um, so on social welfare programs, which are funded by you and me. They're funded by the American taxpayer. So as an American taxpayer, it's in your interest to actually ensure that the government is closing the gender pay gap and that your tax dollars are being used not to subsidize the gender pay gap, but actually for the best economic outcome for everyone. Mm, that makes sense. And it also creates a lot more economic stimulus if if you pay one equivalently. I think that you'll see a lot more money flowing into the system. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I've often said, like, we can't choose whether or not we pay for people. We can only choose how we pay for them. So would we like to make economic investments that have good returns? Or do we want to not do that upfront investment and then deal with the consequences of that, which are things such as social welfare programs? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I'm going to look at you always pay with interest later on. Right. So that's the reality. And I think when we do like tax cuts for like, if I want to build a building in New York city, the government will, will give me a subsidy to build that building because it creates jobs. Right. But then that's getting ahead of the issue and helping so we're not paying stuff downstream, right? And that creates opportunity. And I think we have to do the same thing with individuals. If we're paying them equitably up front, then we're not having to do all social issues and pay with interest later to fix the things that we damaged because we didn't do it right in the first place. Right. I mean, and that's why 
interestingly, like if you even go back to like breadwinner moms specifically, right? So I'm one of them, but in the United States, 40% of U.S. households with children under the age of 18, moms are the breadwinners, mm-hmm. right? So there are 16 million breadwinner moms. They support 28 million children. And as a cohort, breadwinner moms have the largest gender pay gap of any women in the workforce. It's 66 cents on the dollar. And if you look at that through an intersectional gender lens, so specifically gender plus race and ethnicity, Black breadwinner moms have the largest gender pay gap of any women in the United States, which is 44 cents on the dollar. And they support the majority of all Black children in the United States. So an investment, for instance, in breadwinner moms, and moms are the most productive employees in the workforce, is not only an investment in today's labor force, it's actually an investment in the future labor force. Because what we know from research is that the number one most important factor to the future economic standing of children is their parents' current economic standing. Mm, That makes sense. So I almost think, I mean, I was going to, one of the questions I was going to end this with is, do you think that we'll close the gender gap in our lifetime? But I feel like it's a two-part question because one is, do you think we're going to achieve that? But number two is, I think companies have to start looking at like parental care and and childcare as part of a a benefit they're offering their employees so they can actually get more productivity and actually build the next generation of workforces, which right now is not really embedded in, in, in their benefits programs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I will say a couple of things about that, which is that, you know, during the pandemic um, and afterward, there's been a lot of conversation around both paid leave and uh, childcare. And those are absolutely things that we should invest in. Uh, The federal government has subsidized. There's a precedent for that uh, childcare. They did it during World War II with the Lanham Act. And, and, and these are things we should invest in, particularly with an elderly population and folks like me who are part of the sandwich generation, which are both raising children and taking care of elderly parents. Mm-hmm. Those are absolutely investments we should make. We should not, however, assume that those in and of, and I'm not saying you're doing this, mm-hmm. just generally in the narrative, that those in and of themselves will close the gender equity gap. That is that they will catapult us toward equity. They are absolutely important levers Mm -hmm. and two other very important levers in actually reaching this are equitable skilling Mm -hmm. because we leaped forward five years during the pandemic in digital acceleration. So the jobs that existed at the beginning of the pandemic do not exist now. And we need to close that gap which would also close occupational segregation and close uh, compensation gaps. That's one. And the second piece, and when I say equitable skilling, it is both equitable access to skilling opportunities and equitable access to apply those skills. Because we know, for instance, that women in STEM, 50% of them will leave in the first 10 years because of a hostile work environment. And we know that women are better coders as long as you don't know that they're women. Right. So we need to close both those gaps. The second is we actually need to ensure equity in the workforce, which is what Pipeline does using technology. Uh, You know, prior to launching Pipeline, um, I had been in the corporate world for 23 years, had managed hundreds of people, obviously very committed to equity. But in that system, I had to choose to be equitable. 
right? Yeah. With the pipeline platform, we shift companies from inequitable by default to equitable by design. So as a manager, I am now receiving recommendations to ensure equity. And if I choose to reject those recommendations, and I may have a good reason for doing them, I'm now choosing potentially to be inequitable. That's a very different decision-making model than what we're currently in. So we really need companies, sure, to absolutely focus on benefits, but also to focus on equity of opportunity in your company. Pay is absolutely an important one, but it's table stakes. We need to ensure that women, and from an intersectional lens, intersectional gender equity, they actually have equity of opportunity to move up because 58% of college graduates are women. They make up 47% of the labor base and they're only 8% of Fortune 500 CEOs. That, it could, those gaps exist because of inequity in the workforce. 100%. In companies, yeah, I, right? I think the so, thing if you have to do all of them in parallel, you don't have to do one after the other. It's, there's no reason for it. To, to really make this work, you have to make all of it happen at the same time, I think. Yes, absolutely. And it's in the it's in the best interest of everyone to do this, right? Not just women, but everybody. If we expand the economic pie, right? The, in the United States gender equity is a three point one trillion dollar opportunity. That doesn't just benefit women; that benefits everyone. Hundred percent, absolutely. I really enjoyed this discussion. Um, I consciously am biased. We we launched this thing called microprogressions, and they're active. They're small action steps you can take to make work a more inclusive environment. And I'll give you an example of one that I worked on during COVID because I didn't realize I was doing this, but with the whole Zoom culture, you're doing these calls, you don't realize you're cutting off people when you're talking to them. And so if I cut you off, for example, the intent from my side is just to get my point across, but in reality what's happening is that, and especially if you're a minority, is I'm saying that your thoughts aren't important to me and you're, and you're not important to me. And that's not the intention that I had. So now I actively pause, listen, and then respond to the question you're asking rather than trying to push my ideas on, on somebody. So from that perspective, what's one mic progression that all leaders of all levels can help take to advance gender equality in the workplace? Listen to people when they speak up and seek to understand where they're coming from. I love that. This is great. Um, is there anything else that you think is important that we need to add that I haven't asked you? The only thing, and you know, it's a theme certainly through what we've talked about, the thing that I would leave people with is that equity is not only a social issue, it's actually a massive economic opportunity. So whether or not people care about equity or even believe it's an issue, at the end of the day, it's a massive economic opportunity. Absolutely. And if they want to reach out to you, where can they find out more information about the organization? Uh, they can go to Pipeline Equity. So uh, Pipeline Equity, two words, two E's next to each other, dot com. Mm -hmm. And they can sign up for the free complimentary equity baseline. And that's where they can find out more about Pipeline. Um, and they can also go to katakaroy.com. You can learn more about our guests and get show notes at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And drop us a note to let us know if there is a topic you really want to hear about or a guest you want to have on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias. <laughs>